Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. And we have three great panelists uh, to pick up your questions. Uh, we have Randy Komisar, a venture capitalist from Kleiner Perkins, Arun Majumdar, the um, uh, Division Head of Environmental Energy Technologies Division at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, and Michael McQuaid, the Senior Vice President for Science and Technology at United Technologies Corporation. And this session is going to be moderated by Emmy Award-winning news anchor Forrest Sawyer, who's kindly joined us for this. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Dan. So I know this is a very sophisticated audience, but I'd just like to find out who we're talking to. How many think that climate change is a significant real problem and we have to start dealing with it yesterday? Okay, how many think that it's a, well, yeah, it's a problem, but we ought to deal with it uh, down the road. We've got plenty of time. Okay, how many think that this is a conspiracy cooked up by Al Gore and those other guys uh, to take your money and put it in a Cayman bank? Okay. <clears throat> That's where we are. It's lonely up here, isn't it? Oh, you know, I am going to fight for you. I see. So it's just depression talking. Uh, I had an occasion to go to uh, to the Arctic Circle with a guy named Ron Prin, uh, and and talk with him for a very long time. And I learned a lot about climate models. That are there are 21 great computer models out there, and they do a fair job trying to model a, a, a chaotic systems. And certainly the MIT Center for global change science, which is Ron Prin's model, is one of the best. And I always like to come with a little bit of news. So the Science Daily has today uh, the latest information from, from Ron and their computer model. <clears throat> they're predicting now that they have been far, far too conservative. And they're saying that by 2100, uh, 91 years from now, uh, they've got a median probability of 5.2 degrees centigrade global change. That means that we will have an unrecognizable planet, if that's right. 90% probability of 3.5 to 7.2 degrees. And Ron believes that they're still being conservative because there are positive feedback loops like uh, peat releasing methane that they're not able to put into their model. So Ron is saying that as, as concerned as he was in 2003, when he predicted about a 2.4 degree change uh, with a median probability, he's dramatically more concerned now. So the question we want to ask is, what are we going to do? What ought we to do individually? What ought we to do politically? What can we do in terms of designing business models that are going to incent significant and rapid change in terms of energy conservation and in terms of uh, more innovative ways to use energy? And I appreciate what Dan said. This is a terrific panel. These are three of the smartest people I've ever met. but you're also a terrific resource. So call it a town meeting, where you kick in ideas, they kick in ideas, and, and we all sort of wrestle with this problem over the next hour. We have two people with microphones, and I have a microphone, right over here. And the way we're going to try to do this is to keep things moving along. Rather than asking a question and then looking for somebody to answer it, they're going to be searching for you with your next uh, discussion point or question, whatever it may be, and be ready for that, and I will come to you uh, immediately. So we're going to kind of go from one side of the room uh, to the other. 
So uh, as we get ready and as you guys get ready to do some talking, and, and truthfully, how good this will be is going to depend on you, because um, I have terrible questions. I'm going to start with Randy, because you're in business to do business. What's the, what's the biggest impediment in your mind to developing the kinds of business models that will uh, get some speed in terms of both energy conservation and energy, innovative energy uh, development? I would say it's clarity about the market direction and pricing and, um, and clarity about the, the policies that are going to either support that or sustain that longer term. If once we have clarity, we understand how to invest. Without clarity, um, that's a risk that uh, we don't like to take. So what are you doing right now? Just uh, right now, we're or? investing around, literally around hypothesis um, around where policy needs to go. A lot of the investing that we're doing today in alternatives and in, and in energy is based around the notion that policy has to drive us towards better solutions, that we have to end up with the right sort of subsidies, incentives, um, tax penalties to be able to incent the right behaviors and investment. And we're, we're in a venture business, so we invest in anticipation, and we're investing in anticipation of those. If those don't happen the way that we predict they're going to happen, it will lead to a large retrenchment in the number of dollars being invested. Michael, you're in business. Um, regulatory policy, incentives, predictability are all there to help create <laughs> businesses. Uh, and the purpose of, purpose of what we do is to get through that period so that the products and technologies we create actually do return value, uh, not in an artificial fashion. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Now, as I understand it, you, do you seriously think that climate change is just kind of nonsense? Oh, yeah. So is everything that they're saying unnecessary and what we should do no, is just keep going like no, we're going? No, I think there are lots of options. I just uh, believe that it's very important to get some of these fundamentals straight. If we're going to make decisions, uh, we can't just assume that, you know, the weather is going to be bad because my wife told me the last few weeks that we had a cold snap, and I should pay attention to that. <laughs> I think she's right. I went back and looked. But wh how would it change your behavior uh, in terms of developing businesses and, and saving energy and so on? My behavior isn't going to change much anyway. You know, I've got my ideas. I've been working on solar cells for a long time, waiting for everybody to need them. And uh, so th I'm going to keep doing that. But you don't think they're going to I'm be just a little you know, element in the big picture. And it takes a lot of guys like me, mechanical engineers, to go do something. And planners can, you know, talk about it, figure it out, argue over it. Politicians, we know what they do. And there's the problem, Maroon. There are an awful lot of people who have been working this. I was with some wind energy folks a few weeks ago. And they're concerned about whether the subsidies that they need, even to stay in business, are going to go away now. All the people who've been working in alternative energies are struggling, and oil prices are down. So how do you get people to pay attention? And you know, why should they? Well, I think there are multiple approaches, multiple reasons. At least to me, it seems like um, this is a very early stage um, for this industry. Um, it's we have to, um, in words that I've learned over the last few years, turn the Titanic around so that it doesn't hit the iceberg or it may graze the iceberg. And during this time, there's a lot of nurturing that's required for, for industries 
and with incentives, with tax incentives and others, if you could do that, I think that'll be in the interest of the nation and the world to do it. Um, I'm not a business guy, so I won't talk about the business side, but I certainly talk about the science and technology and the education side. Um, there is tremendous work to be done in making solar cells, as we heard today, cheaper and scalable. There's a scale issue out here, which is not often appreciated. Um, there are issues about buildings. How do you reduce energy consumption buildings at scale? 50% reduction in existing buildings. How do you make batteries? We don't have a battery infrastructure in this country, and we are buying from international you know, groups and companies and countries. And if you turn into you know, transportation based on batteries, we will be importing again. And we need a battery infrastructure, and for that it's materials and science and understanding. So there are lots of scientific issues. And frankly, right now, uh, in terms of hiring people, uh, I like to hire students and postdocs, grad students and postdocs, who are they're very interested in energy, but if I want to hire them after graduation, there's not much of a pool out there who understand in depth and breadth the science and engineering and policies and issues of engineering. So there's a lot of work to be done, and I think I'm hoping there'll be some nurturing of this over the next decade. Because the good news is, Arun, a lot of the people who are going into the financial industry are, are now going to be talking to you. Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> Sir, what do you think the tax should be on gasoline in the United States? The tax on? Gasoline. What should it be at? Yeah. It, 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 it's an interesting conversation because when I, during the Bush administration, when we met with the, um, the secretary and undersecretaries at DOE, the, we had long conversations about their investment strategy and the, the elephant in the room at the end was gasoline prices. And, um, and nobody would talk about it and I asked the question, what is the policy around a uh, OPEC response to the way they responded at the end of the 70s with a s significant reduction in the barrel of gas uh, of oil what's our response none of the investment strategies none of the policy strategies that you have today would live 6 months through a uh, a $30 a barrel um, price and the answer was we're terrified of it we're terrified of it because we realize it could set us back the way it did at the end of the 70s it, you know, I, I look around the room, there are many of you who lived through the 70s with me, and, uh, and the reality was at that time there was a tremendous amount of consciousness about energy, energy dependence. Um, OPEC had, for the first time, exercised its muscle and we felt it. And, um, and there was a lot of policy changes in the works that would have created a lot more energy independence for us as a nation at this point. That died very, very quickly. Um, as the president who wore cardigans in the White House was ushered out. And that problem is a problem that we face today. And so I, when you, indirectly, so to your gasoline price, I believe we need to um, tax gasoline to a minimum price. We need a range that we understand is the range that provides an investable range, both for the automobile um, companies, for the alternative energy companies, for battery companies, and I think as a policy, we need to tax, keep oil in that range. We can, re, we can reduce the tax if uh, oil naturally occurs in that range. But we need to strike a range that we agree that gasoline prices are going to be in. And, um, and we, need to, we need to enforce that in some fashion or another with taxes. That's, that's my belief. 
I'm going to come to you in a moment, but I'm going to preempt you. For Mr. Nogola's seventh grade science class in Oxnard, California, who is listening to this now. Hi, guys. The question is, why doesn't our government move more quickly to implement already available technology? Arun, what are they doing in Washington? Well, I don't know exactly what they're doing in Washington, but... It's okay, um, they don't need <laughs> They're doing a lot of things, though. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the pace that this administration is moving is fairly astonishing. And um, existing technologies... Well, in the energy efficiency... Let me just talk about energy efficiency area. Um, the price of electricity is actually quite low. If you, if you ask the people around here, how much do you pay for, for a utility bill and what fraction of it is of your income? And at least in this crowd, I would say that that's a very, very small number. So how do you get more efficient? I think if you can, for example, in California, uh, you know, California is one of the leading states in this, there have been policy changes that were done in the 70s. Uh, for example, decoupling. And decoupling has made the utilities incentivized to introduce energy efficient, to make you more energy efficient, and they'll make money out of it. And I think only about 10 or 11 states have done that. We need a federal policy to do that so that now we can get the whole nation moving in the direction of energy efficiency. That would be a wonderful thing to do. I feel you dodged my question. <laughs> uh, anybody want to take the question on? What, what, the seventh grade class would like to know why Washington's sitting there like a lox. You guys? Michael? I'll be happy. To Randy, I knew you would. I'll be happy to take the question on. Um, it, the, the amount of special interests in Washington that are energized around this issue on both sides is second to none in, in policy issues in the United States today. And it, Washington, I think, comes to a complete standstill when you can throw up the inconsequential data that creates doubt. And if we see the campaigns that have gone on, the campaigns that have gone on against uh, what we think about is, a, I think, is a general consensus now that, that humans do impact global warming, the campaigns that went have, have gone on against those sorts of um, scientific um, uh, insights have just generally been ones of creating FUD, fear and, uh, and doubt. And so in Washington today, fear and doubt carry, the, carry a lot of weight in the lobbies. And Washington is not a place that I think is great at making very definitive, crisp decisions. And we're at a time when we can't hesitate to make those decisions. The generation that should be concerned is that is not necessarily the generation in this room, but that seventh, that seventh grade class. It is their birthright. This economy and this ecology is their birthright. And uh, I think, as McDonough said last night, it's a tragedy when the debts, essentially, or the forward pricing, leaves the dead in control of the resources of the living. And uh, that is, in fact, uh, a situation that we are faced with today, when um, we are seeing intergenerational transfer of wealth, um, ecology, uh, to the current generation at the expense of the seventh grade class and, uh, and, 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 and their children to come. Yeah, if I can just, if I can just add one thing. I, look, I think, I think we do have a very unique chance right now. We have, you know, the negative side of it is the economy's gone in the toilet and that's going to get in the way of investable opportunities. We have a once in a lifetime, hopefully once in many lifetime, opportunity to create a different kind of economy, particularly in this country. Uh, and I think the government has a very, and is stepping up to a very significant role there. 
you know, my sort of proof point of the way we used to think and the way we need to think. So we can all argue whether 35 mile per gallon CAFE standard is a good thing or not. Uh, compare that to the Chrysler response to $4 a gallon gasoline, which was not to incent you to buy a more efficient car. It was to pay your gasoline for two years to buy an SUV. I mean, we have a once in a lifetime chance to change the economic structure on which we value energy in the country. And I think the appreciation for science and technology in the current administration, the investments that are being made admittedly one time do give me some degree of hope that there's a hurdle we can get over right now. I'm going to ask you to stand up when you ask questions, guys. This is Sheetal. Thank you. Um, I have a, a sort of open-ended question, but I would like um, an example for answer. So how do you balance uh, policies with um, economic progress? Mm. Uh, for example, and this, this also goes back to behavior modification. For example, if we want to reduce electricity usage with existing technology, um, increasing prices or step pricing is probably the answer, part of the answer, but that's going to hurt businesses. Um, so in your opinion, um, how do you balance that? Do you have any example or insights on that? But I, I think it's important to understand what the role of government is in this situation because in a market economy, there's this general sense that government only gets in the way. The problem we've got when we talk about energy and economy and ecology is that these are public resources and that as a result, there is a public trust and a set of public expectations about how these things should operate. And the social costs incurred with those things is not reflected in the market economy. If it was, I would probably feel a lot more confident keeping the government out and letting the market set pricing and letting the market encourage the right level of investment. Until the social costs are fully um, represented in those market decisions, we end up with an underinvestment in new, in new and innovative um, technologies, in efficiency, in conservation, and we end up with an excessive investment in those things that um, are wasteful and, uh, and otherwise do, do not provide social benefit. We need, uh, in this country in particular, where the politics of the marketplace prevailed until very recently, um, when we've got a really cold splash of water uh, on our face in 2008, um, until that time, there was no room for the government in that discussion. The good news is there is room for that, the government in that discussion today. There is, I think, a, um, a lack of trust and a lack of confidence in the market forces that certainly we saw drive Wall Street and the capital markets. Those same problems occur in other parts of the market economy, not just in the capital markets. And we need the government to take a position that allows us to bring those social costs into the equation. Okay, let me ask you to uh, rise and identify yourselves since it's a distinguished audience. Yeah, my name is John Lathrop. I'm from Lawrence uh, Livermore Lab. And uh, one of the things we're doing... Were you we planted have... here by uh, room? Pardon what? Were you planted <laughs> no, here by no, room? No, no, no right. not at all. And I understand there's somebody on the panel from a competitor lab, but I won't <laughs> mention that again. We have a consortium, and it's the, cli the climate modelers and the energy system modelers, and are working with some electric utilities. And so we come up with this idea with this one utility, which I won't name. Gee, um, you'll need to move this plant to another place. And you'll need to move it in, um, in maybe 2030 or 20, 2050. Uh, we're not sure yet, but our models are tracking it, and it's a probabilistic thing. And they look at us, and they say, well, thank you, Lawrence Livermore, but 
you know, we have to go in front of a PUC. We have to work in, an in a governmental and a regulatory environment that doesn't think in terms of 20 years, 50 years, and probabilities. So we have to ask the PUC to spend this several hundred million dollars of the ratepayers' money based on this probabilistic 20 to 40 year projection. How do we get the PUCs and the government's minds wrapped around this much longer term and probabilistic sort of decision making? And let me add, it's not only the PUC, it's, it's corporations that have to think in three month terms. Right. It's every quarter you've got to step up to the plate. Right. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think there's a, there's a corollary issue here too, which is, you know, we have so look, in the science side, we deal with multi-scale phenomena. We have, we have too many timescales here that are irrelevant to the problem, right? I mean, one of the challenges we have of, of people getting their arms around 450 part per million CO2 equivalent is that you don't see that on a day-to-day basis, right? So, so the question is, how do we create a series of interim goals which have recognizable performance associated with them, that have recognizable goals and standards, and for which the attainment of those has a measurable influence on people's lives. That's an information flow that has to come. That's a connection between the impact of CO2 in the economy of the country, the impact of CO2 in the healthcare of the country, and the impact of CO2 as an example, or energy availability on the energy security of the country. It's incumbent. That is, in my opinion, that is a role government can and should play, is how do you bridge time frames that are beyond what an individual or an individual company is going to think. I would say I'm, I'm optimistic about this one because the PUCs, I agree with you, in the past have, you know, looked at short-term, you know. But if you now look at the strategic plan that Diane Grunick talked about uh, yesterday, um, that is a 2030 plan. And that is about how to get efficiencies. They've got a loading order in efficiency and renewables, et cetera. And I think it's a very bold plan and it's in the right direction. So I'm hoping. That that's the that's the model that the rest of the nation will follow as well. I'm optimistic. I have here Charles Kolstad, who is the chairman of the UCSB Economics Department and who feels a deep personal responsibility for the recession. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's all my fault. Uh, I, I just had one comment, though, to the seventh grade class before I move on to my question. Seventh grade class in Oxnard. Uh, it's all one of the additional reasons for the uh, the log jam in Washington is that a policy, a climate change policy, hurts some people and helps other people. And the coal industry in particular is going to get hit by whatever we do, and, and so it should. Change has winners and losers, and that is also one reason why you have uh, political difficulties. But my question has to do with innovation. Everybody and in many people in this room are, are innovators at the cutting edge. We've heard a lot about it today and people on the panel. Uh, we've, we've also heard that a higher price of energy gets consumers to buy um, new energy efficient technologies. My question is to you innovators, uh, what will, will, is it necessary to have a higher price of energy or a higher carbon price to get you to innovate more or do you innovate regardless of the price of energy? Is it really the federal government putting money into innovation that gets you to innovate? What does it take to get more innovation? Before you answer that, can I ask you a question? <laughs> uh, no, seriously. You're, you're talking about it, the, the free markets as this kind of creative destruction that everybody talks about. It's a way of bringing new energy, and the coal companies are going to have to take a hit. Why isn't what K Street does, which are the lobbyists, where they funnel a ton of money to the government? 
why isn't that a way to actually impede innovation and to hold on to your, your current status as a, a stakeholder? K Street being the lobbying uh, arm yeah. of the federal government. Well, no, of all the corporations that well, live there. Well, that's what I mean. But and prey on the federal government. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of uh, what in some countries would be illegal, um, basically buying influence in Congress, but that's for the chairman of the political science department, I think. All right. The question about innovation, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. Let me start with the innovation question. Um, when we look at investing in technologies, photovoltaics, uh, new thermoelectrics, uh, whether we're looking in new generation plants or looking at efficiency, we need to see those foot against the market incentives that will drive consumption, whether it's on the commercial level or the, or the consumer level. Today, almost every single one of those technologies we see do not stack up well against even $50 oil and uh, and, and, and 10 cent per kilowatt um, electricity, to take an average. They don't stack up well. You, they would be non-investable as, as te new technologies if you were to take them at today's commodity pricing. The only way they become investable is two things. One, in the near term, you're, you're getting some sort of either predictability, meaning you're getting some sort of future pricing. They did this, for instance, in Germany by setting feed-in tariffs for solar electricity so that anybody on their house knew that they could sell electricity back to the government at, at 60 euros per kilowatt, which is a huge amount of money, and by the way, has led Germany, with not a lot of sun, to be one of them, have the, some of the, the, the highest percentage of solar installations in the world. You could argue that's not necessarily a great investment, but it did drive the innovation in the technology, which is driving PV prices down today. So that's one issue. The other thing that we need longer term is understanding where we are on the technology innovation curve. We can't believe that that technology is ultimately going to be non-competitive. We have to believe it's going to be disruptive and competitive at market pricing, however that's determined. Whether there's carbon included in that pricing or not is a wild card. Whether there's tax incentives included or not is a wild card. But ultimately, it's got to be competitive. The time frame for that depends upon what, we, what the incentives are and what sort of predictability we have in the longer term to, to determine that rate of return. But Randy, don't, realistically speaking, don't you have to do something like cap and trade or something like a carbon tax in order to reduce emissions? I, I believe yes. I believe that we need to include carbon in the market conversation and we need to include it in the pricing because it's the only proxy we have right now for what we think about is wastage. Now, mind you, I think carbon, to be frank, I think we're focusing too much on carbon. There's a lot of other issues that need to be brought into the sustainability discussion, but it is a proxy that people are willing to value, and it's a proxy that people can measure. And so the opportunity to use that as a proxy for sustainable development and efficiency is important. I do think that it is um, a proxy for the social cost that's missing from the equation today. All right, but you're saying, let me turn to you guys about that. You're saying the market can't do it. It's a regulatory question. I, I think the market has been allowed to not do it. 
the, the market has saying been saying the same thing. Isn't it? Saying the same thing. I mean, I think, and I think, you know, somebody asked a question about government role. I, look, there's a sort of fundamental belief here: the government role is to identify those costs which are outside a particular economic cycle and make sure they are included in that cycle. I'll give, I'll give you an example. So, so we're in the buildings industry. We have over a hundred years in the United States in the building industry allowed ourselves to assume that safety in buildings matters. The government has helped in that process. And there's a lot of data and a lot of studies that say today buildings cost 3 to 5 percent more than they would if we didn't have safety regulations in buildings. Smoke detectors, fire suppression systems, et cetera, et cetera. Building buildings that aren't going to fall over. The, the government, local, state, regulatory agencies have helped create the necessity to value 3 to 5 percent in buildings. We don't do that in energy. We do not do that in energy yet, and that is a missing part of the equation. How about this, Michael? I think that's socialism. I think that you are getting your hand into the free market. The free market should be allowed to operate, and what you're going to do is distort the way the markets work. You're going to mess things up just like government always messes things up, and so you should just keep your hands out of it. Thank you very much. <laughs> do, do, do you breathe cleaner air than you did in the 1960s? Do I? Yes. Do you have cleaner water than you did in the 1960s in the United States? So you're, you're arguing that the government must become involved. I think, I think if the economic cycle does not include the full cost of the technology it brings, then, then the government has a role to play. And yes. since that goes out into the common, that's your point? That's I'm sorry, say again? Since it goes out into the common area, that's correct. That's the, correct. the company isn't going to cost it. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you don't have a microphone. I have one. <laughs> Deborah Peppers with Energy Times you 2. You speak a little louder. Okay. Um, regardless of your beliefs in, in the various areas of greenhouse gas, carbon emissions, I believe all of us would agree that it's incumbent upon us to be good stewards of our environment. Uh, whatever we do, assuming we strike 100 percent or about 1,000 in the United States, we still live in a global economy where you have China building two coal-fired uh, coal power plants per week and a number of other emerging uh, economies that want to improve their economy. They're going to be using a lot of energy to do it. A lot of it, not necessarily friendly energy, if we want to call it that. How do you see us being able to fulfill our role and be able to move everything into a more global economy effectively? Can I ask you a question? Sure. Why should China slow down their growth when their people are, are, are struggling as much as they are if we're not willing to slow ours down? That's a darn good question, but the other question is, is it concomitant with what we do? Because we have to remain competitive in the global economy to, to maintain our standing in the, in the world marketplace. Who wants well, let me just answer that very briefly. I mean, we have in Lawrence Berkeley Lab a China program and also an India program. Uh, I think it's very important to engage with them on a regular basis. And I think from what we have learned is that there's tremendous interest um, out there in, in both China and India to be more energy efficient, to, be, to go after renewables. It's just that they, at this point, um, it, it is very hard for them to go to renewables completely uh, because that's going to affect their uh, the, the growth, economic growth. So the question is very, it's, it's, it's absolutely right on the mark. But if you go to China, they'll say that we want energy efficiency in cement. Okay, cement manufacturing, they produce 50% of the cement, 5% per year. That's an extremely aggressive goal, and it's mandated. They have to do it. The same thing in India. India, in fact, the, the supply cannot uh, keep up with the demand. So it's in their interest 
for business interest to reduce the demand. Uh, and that's basically energy efficiency and things like that. So there's a tremendous amount of interest. So I think they can be brought along, and there's an opportunity to provide technology, and they're willing to, they're interested in this, uh, for, for United States corporations out here to provide the technology, and it's a huge business opportunity. So I think this is, uh, this is timely in that sense to engage with them and see where the opportunities are. I mean, the biggest impact I think we can have in, this, um, in the global economy is to develop the right technologies. Right now, if you look at the Chinese or Indian model of prosperity, it looks, unfortunately, a lot like ours. And almost every technology, I mean, just run the math. If 6% if of the world's population is consuming 20-plus percent of the world's resources, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You just, can't, you just can't get from here to there. As prosperity rises, the middle class rises, hopefully, around the world. And that's what we want. So if that's what we want, we have to come up with a better plan for that. And the better plan has to be that we need better technologies. It can't be our old technologies. Our old technologies are wasteful. We have to come up with better technologies. They have to be exportable technologies. It's our job to innovate those technologies, not just for ourselves, but to make sure that four billion other people, as they approach the middle-class lifestyle and consume middle-class goods and energy, have better models for doing that. So if anything, it is really, I think, our responsibility, not just our birthright, to develop those technologies so that the rest of the world can achieve prosperity without having to go to our wasteful models. Yeah, I had a good friend one time who told me that, you know, the best way to be an evangelist or the necessary condition to be an evangelist is to be right. You know, and I think it's, I think it's, a, it's crucial for us to demonstrate that, both from a technology point of view and from sort of a societal point of view, that we can manage the energy efficiency and energy productivity of the United States in a way that is a transferable model. The global economy will take care of itself, I think, if we have a chance to demonstrate that there are solutions that apply. But to, to be at, you know, a factor of four higher than 80% of the world population in the energy density or energy density per consumer, uh, and, and then to say it's somebody else's problem, I think is a disingenuous place to be. So I'm going to make one of you king of the world. I guess that makes me emperor or something. That's a ruin. Um, you believe that school. climate change is a problem. You have a big pot of money to throw at it. How are you going to divide it between mitigation and adaptation hmm. by percentage? Oh, boy. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, you've touched on a really important issue, and I think it's, I, I don't know if it's been discussed at any of the earlier sessions, but um, as we were talking earlier with Forrest, there was this question asked, are we pessimistic or optimistic? The notion being, have we crossed a line now in our uh, environment where we can no longer get control of what we think about as global warming and other sustainability issues. And, um, and I will tell you that I've examined this question as an investor and come out as what I think is a realist who is positive. I wouldn't call myself optimistic. And I, the realism is I think we may very well have crossed the line. I think there's a, there's a reasonable chance that given where we are today, if we haven't crossed the line, our political institutions are unlikely to keep us from crossing the line in the very near future. What and as a result, the, the notion that we're somehow going to keep ourselves from, um, from entering into the danger zone, as however that's defined on global warming, um, I don't think that's a realistic prospect anymore. I think it's very hard to put numbers. I mean, without 
I mean, if you say 10%, 20%, you can always be, you'll always be wrong. But I think it is a question of really moving the Titanic off the iceberg. And that will be, you know, you will have to do many, many things. And each one is necessary, but not sufficient. And mitigation, absolutely, we have to start. And I think the data is suggesting that we are worse off than the IPCC predictions, et cetera. So we have to worry about uh, you know, mitigation. But this is the time, I believe, to innovate in science and technology, as well as align the policies to pull the science and the technology innovations into the market and to change the ship, to turn the ship around. So I don't want to put numbers. I mean, I think that's, that would be meaningless to do it right now. But someone in Washington ought to do that. 50, 25, 25. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, if I had a bucket of money and I was king of the world, I would spend 25% of the money now on mitigation for the future, developing the, end, the early stage technology base that we need. I'd spend 25% of the money on optimizing the current energy sources and infrastructure we have, and I'd spend 50% of the money on new energy and energy efficiency. I, let me just pursue what you said about crossing the line, because there are a lot of climatologists, as you know, Randy, who are saying that somewhere out there is, is a dragon. Right. And that's where it becomes a positive feedback loop. You're not going to do anything about it. It's going to start feeding on itself yeah. because the oceans are going to, all that. Right. Okay. Is that what you're saying? Yes. You think we I, may have already crossed it? I, I believe that if we haven't crossed it, it's unlikely our political institutions are going to, are going to keep us from crossing it in the near future, meaning that we are going to be in that quote-unquote defined danger zone. I don't necessarily believe that it leads to Armageddon. I do believe that we are, we did, that forces us to think differently about how we invest. So I would say that when I'm looking at investments, um, I don't really distinguish much between investments that are going to give us um, what I'd say is positive returns against uh, waste and energy and um, global warming today versus mitigation. I think a lot of what, I'm, what I think about and what makes me positive, in spite of the statement I just made, is, okay, we're going to live in a world where we're going to have a lot of environmental changes, and a lot of them are going to be bad. What can we start to do as a society to make that world better? What can we do to make it better for the next generation? What can we do to make it more than survivable? It's just the, it's the cards we're going to end up living with. So what do we do? You don't sort of just throw up your hands and say, this is it, the last hurrah. That's not the case. The world continues. And the innovation that we're going to need to make are the innovations that are going to make that world a better place. You are. John Bowers uh, at the Institute. One of the goals of this conference is to facilitate commercialization of the technologies being developed here and elsewhere in, into industry. And there are a lot of cases where technology and policy are not in conflict and countries have gone after, <laughs> countries have gone after specific fields like Korea and Taiwan in terms of displays or memory and been very successful at aligning business and government laboratories and startups and universities to all become dominant in a given area. If you had one silver bullet or one policy change, what would it be to get all, all of us aligned to make us dominant in these renewable energies and energy efficiency technologies? Can uh, I have, Michael. Can I have two bullets, actually? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but we've talked about both of them. I think, uh, you know, despite my diatribe before about you can't do it forever. There is a minimum time frame under which incentives, 
and, and related regulatory policy has to exist. So the commercialization of technologies that you don't know whether the incentives to get those sort of into commercial production are going to disappear next year doesn't help. Uh, we've had a lot of success in the last year collectively as a country in moving some of those things out. Those of us who have some interest in fuel cells, we went from an every one or every two-year re renewal of the fuel cell incentive credits to an eight-year credit. Those are the kind of things that are necessary. So my first bullet is sort of stable incentive and investment policy. Uh, and the second is, uh, and again, a very positive story from where we are right now, the amount of uh, both commitment to fundamental science that's necessary and the commitment to the deployment of that science through academia and the uh, uh, government infrastructure out into industry. I think that's a, that's a very big win for us right now that we all need to both take advantage of and demonstrate that we can deliver on right now. Kathy Staples, Santa Barbara County Energy Coalition. Uh, Mr. McQuaid, panel, um, partnering. Might I suggest that this conversation or my question to you be around partnering? Uh, reality. In Santa Barbara County, we had a $46 million shortfall last year. That meant 10% of all jobs were lost in this county. This year we're facing between a 15 and a 30 million dollar shortfall. We tried to put the um, Lompoc Wind Generation Project, was a project I worked on, renewables. We have such outstanding ideas in this room on renewables and wind generation, solar, outstanding. The reality is it took six and a quarter years to go through our planning and permitting process here and a million dollars in fees and mitigation costs. We haven't got a shovel in the ground yet. That is the current one and only project that's being looked at a renewable aspect. So question, might you think that we might take some revenues and resources that are coming, let's say, from the uh, fossil fuel industry, natural gas, oils, and bring those revenues into Santa Barbara County, maybe into a larger sense of the word, into the nation, and repartner rather than become adversaries so that we can make this transition? My concern is that as hard as we are trying and as fast as we are running to make this transition and many wonderful things are coming on the market, they aren't financially viable, as we were just talking about. And having it available to the people to be able to be affordable would be a wonderful opportunity, even as hard as we are looking in Santa Barbara County to deal with AB 32 and the issues of, that are going to have mandated consequences to them, help us find a way that we might transition as partners rather than adversaries. Do you think that's possible, Mr. Quick? I suppose making this a California ballot resolution is just not a good idea. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that. I'm, I'm, the panel might be able to answer that. I, I, uh, the governor can answer it, too. Yeah, I'll, I'll go very quickly, and then I'm going to actually turn it over to the two California guys here. Um, you know, you're asking the Connecticut guy to talk about partnering. I, 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 think, I, think the, I think what I would bring you back to is, is a very important and enlightened presentation that Diane Grunick gave yesterday. And I think, I think at the essence of what CPUC is trying to do is to establish a, a pathway that says there is not one solution and for a period of time a mechanism to allow the rate pay base to do the kind of partnerships you're talking about gets instantiated. And I think that's a very important strategic document. How that gets instantiated into actual projects, I mean, the devil is always in the detail, but my understanding of what CPUC is trying to do is exactly what you're talking about. So, um, This question is about venture capital and the connection to, or possible connection relationship with, uh, with the government. And uh, as people have been looking at uh, venture capital over the last uh, several years, there's been a, a great decline in the 
uh, initial public offerings, the IPOs coming out of those investments. And uh, so as a result of that, also looking at uh, the amount of money going into the VCs to then distribute to startup companies, uh, that has declined also. So some, some people are saying that uh, venture capital is broken. Um, and so then the question might be, uh, what might be done to fix that? Is, so in this context, does it make any sense uh, to propose uh, perhaps a closer connection between uh, venture capital and the government, and especially uh, with respect to uh, the capability of those two working together like they have not worked together before. First is somebody from, from the energy department could be on your board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no? Um, venture capital is very challenged by the fact that there are no IPOs. Venture capital works when we can get liquidity, turn our money around in a cycle where we invest early, a lot of failures, a few winners, a few winners go public, those companies, we, we, we then are able to distribute the stock that we get in those and we are able to get a new set of investors for a new fund and invest again. That has been challenged since the since 2003-2002 in, in the United States, not, not just recently. Um, it's only gotten worse. And the issues in the capital markets probably impact us more than anything else in that regard, not the energy markets per se. I will say this though, in Silicon Valley, I've been doing companies in Silicon Valley since the mid-80s. For most of my career, nobody had any regard for Washington. Washington had no voice in the process. We didn't care what went on outside of, it's certainly inside the Beltway. It was not important to us. Right around the time of the Microsoft antitrust case, end of the 90s, we became very interested. Um, it was very important to the next set of companies we were building, Netscape, Google, Amazon, et cetera. And as a result, we actually became politicized. We ended up with lobbying groups. And we started to spend time in Washington understanding the process and how it impacted what we were doing. From that time to the present, we have really sort of become much more sophisticated. We have a lot more outreach to DC and Sacramento all the time. Um, Al Gore is one of my partners. And we didn't bring him on board just because he's a good investor, then he is, but we brought him on board obviously because he really understands what's going on from a policy standpoint in the United States and globally with regard to areas that we're interested in investing in, particularly energy. So yes, there is probably much more of a symbiotic relationship between outside venture capital and the government, government policies and government capital. Um, but ultimately, if we don't see a return of the, of the IPO markets, it doesn't matter. We're going to have to see a robust capital market again to regenerate this capital back in innovation. Uh, we got time for two more questions, and here's one. Jeffrey Smith, I'm a project management professional. I actually run the crews and manage the projects that install energy efficient lighting. But I want to kind of come back to the smart seventh graders. Uh, motion sensors and electronic ballasts are all out there, but the contracting rules and regulations, I think they're going to have a hard time spending all of the, uh, the federal money because it's so hard to get it all the way down to, to spend the money even. But so maybe your take on that and can we loosen up the contracting rules so that we could just install things like motion sensors and electronic ballasts and get rid of T12, the fat lamps that are out there that use you know, two thirds more energy. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, look, I think, I think 
I said, said it before, I think it's a pretty unprecedented time with the amount of money that's available. I think, I think we are going to test every part of the infrastructure and our ability to do that. Uh, but I think, I think there are deployable solutions now that really can make a difference and they make a difference economically. So I, I, mean, I think it's, it's blocking I, I, and tackling. I'll tell you what money worries me, be. if I may say. Sure. We did loosen up the rules about money, and there was a lot of money flowing, as there's a lot of money flowing now, when the Iraq war took place. And uh, as I recall, there are billions of dollars that went right up into thin air right. under these relaxed rules. Now, when we got billions and billions of dollars pouring out, aren't we worried about uh, fraud and uh, ill use of the money? Yes. Uh, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, well, is he, he's saying, but he's saying, you got to loosen up the rules. I can't get my work done. Other people are saying, ah, but if you loosen up the rules, then they're going to start taking it and sticking it on a mattress and then flying to the Caymans. I don't know that I'm, I, I, yeah, I don't know that I'm in a position to, to say, I, I, it's a recognized problem. I think you're right. Randy is. He lobbies yeah, I'll, all I'll, the time. Yeah, what the hell? I have an opinion yeah. on anything. Fail me out here, so, please. <laughs> so, uh, but I do, I do think that we, the system needs to be lossy at this point. And what I mean by that is we can't tighten it down so much right. that we're worried about every dollar being spent efficiently. We should police fraud. We should make sure that regulators have the ability to police fraud better. The capital, what happened to capital markets last year should have been a good warning around that. So we need to make sure that we don't um, dismantle our, our, um, our regulatory bodies that can actually pursue the bad guys in the situations where they are making a big difference. But the system needs to be lossy for us to be able to move faster. We're okay. going to invest some money inefficiently. We can't worry about every marginal dollar. We just got to hope that the bulk of those dollars make a difference fast. We don't have a lot of time. But in the Recovery Act dollars, I mean, if you are receiving Recovery Act dollars, the, the, um, the tag also, associated with the tag, are also fairly stringent reporting rules. And so I think, you know, that, that's obviously designed to reduce the fraud and things like that. My worry is actually not whether the money will be spent. The question is timing, because the idea is to spend it in a time, in a short enough time to be able to stimulate the economy. And whether that will happen in a timely fashion is something of concern. Chris Goodman, um, Innovative Microtechnology here in, in uh, Goleta. Um, human behavior, it just seems that that's all of them. Um, the, uh, uh, we're setting goals for 2020, 2030, 2050 right now, that's great, but the people in office are going to, you know, the, the policy is going to change a dozen times between now and then. Is there a way to invest in human behavior? Uh, maybe to change it, I, I'm not optimistic there either. Uh, it takes 50,000 years for a mutation to be adapted into the genome. Uh, so we're hardwired the way we are, and we're going to be that way uh, when the year 2050 rolls by. Is there a way to invest in human behavior and make it work for the technologies? First of all, just to be responsive, humans have are, have so much software in their brains that they can respond remarkably well. And if you look back over just recorded history, let alone the history of the time that we came out of Africa, we have changed, changed, and changed again, and changed remarkably rapidly when circumstances force us to change. We are not inclined to change just because it's there, but when we are presented with problems, humans are about as capable of changing quickly as any living thing. In fact, they are. 
except for E. coli, which is particularly bad. I'll, I'll give you a quick answer and then let, let the guys here have the last word. I, so I don't want to be negative on it, but I, I don't think people change human behavior just because we tell them to. I mean, I think, I think I, you, you've got the sort of 500,000 years of DNA. I got 100 years of energy that's free. And I think, I think that's a huge impediment to just think people are going to change because we tell them to. I think people are going to change because other solutions become technologically and economically more viable to do that. That's a question of taking a technology road that invents and delivers and deploys technology that's efficient and economically viable, and there is a role for recognizing the true cost of alternatives. I, I think there's value in understanding why people do what they do. I don't spend a lot of time hoping that we're going to get up and just say, let's convince people to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Okay, let me, let me just frame it for you two both to answer this gentleman's question, Chris's question. How do you, can you see all of us changing our behaviors sufficiently and quickly enough to be able to at least mitigate the strong impacts of, of the winds of change that are, that are coming toward us? How do you see that happening? Well, I, I don't know. I don't have a silver bullet for that. But I think if I look at the at people changing the behavior in the United States, perhaps a successful campaign has been against cigarettes. And that's harmful to the health. And it has been pointed out in no uncertain terms how, how harmful it could be. Um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm thinking real time right now. Um, that perhaps some sort of campaign of how harmful it will be to the personal health um, is perhaps a way to do it. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Marketing, you're saying? Marketing, yeah, absolutely. And that has, you know, people have reduced their, the number of people who smoke have reduced significantly. And over a span of what, 15, 20, 20 years? Right? So, Randy, that gives you the last word of the panel discussion. I think Phillips Morris was actually one of the best performing stocks in the last <laughs> six months, unfortunately. Um, so it does go to some notion of what happened to cigarettes, which I think the behavior has changed, not because there was a warning on the package as big as the whole package basically saying this will kill you, but because we raised the tax on it by a buck and a buck and a half and two bucks. So it got really expensive. The problem with changing human behavior around energy is, I think, built around the infrastructures. The reality is if we want to change our behaviors tomorrow around transportation, we can't. We live in the suburbs. If we want to change our behaviors tomorrow around how we consume energy in our homes, we can't. We have to rebuild our homes. And so the process of changing behaviors has to take into consideration these infrastructures that are going to have to change as well. I'm optimistic in the sense that we have a whole bunch of new people and new behaviors coming online. We have them coming online in China. We have them coming online in India. We have a new generation coming online here and in Western Europe. They are going to be the most likely to change their behaviors because they don't have behaviors to change. They are growing into new behaviors. Those are the ones we're going to influence the most. These seventh graders are really our future. The opportunity for them to understand and treat energy differently is really important. But none of that is going to happen, I believe, unless we create the right um, incentives and the right sort of cues in our daily behaviors around energy. Pricing it right, giving good indications of how it's being used and when it's being used, giving people tools 
to be able to do that seamlessly within their current behaviors. We actually do have a set of innovations out there that I think is going to um, make this more possible. And it's outside of energy. It's on the social side. What's happening on the internet today in social networking, you know, names that some of you may know or not know, whether it's Facebook or, or Twitter, um, these things we can smirk at, they are the tools of another generation that is using that to share information, to share ideas, and to create what I see as real grassroots political will. I mean, before we get too down on ourselves, we elected last year a black president who came out of an Ivy League education into the White House. That is a phenomena, and that phenomena was largely driven by a new set of social tools and interaction communications that led to a grassroots um, initiative that made that happen. That should give us some hope that with the right guidance and the right information, the generation behind us, the generation coming up in these other areas that are starting to make these decisions, that they will make different decisions and better decisions than we made. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for a fascinating discussion. Please thank the panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.